0: Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. The topic of diversity comes up from time to time in pathology and all of medicine, and it seems like it gets talked about for a while and then the conversation fades away. But what do you do if you want to continue the conversation? Well, if you're today's guest, you start a podcast about it. Dr. Michael Williams is the host of the Diversify in Path podcast, but there's so much more to his story. Today, we'll hear some of that story and have a very real conversation about diversity. All right, here's Dr. Michael Williams. So the place I wanted to start with is at Twitter, and because you're very active on Twitter, and I've always wondered about your Twitter handle, which mm-hmm. is Blue Hat Comics eighty five. Mm-hmm. Now, all right, so so let's start there. Where 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 did you come up with this?
1: Yeah, so. When I was in, uh, I started my education journey, like graduate in terms of community college. So I started up as a community college student uh, in Newburgh, New York. And I went to SUNY Orange. Um, that was the Middletown. So mm-hmm. when it was winter, I needed a hat, basically. And I was just like, man. And Dave Chappelle was on at that time, too. And he had this like dope, like, kind of like hat with the, the rim on it. And I was like, I wanted that. So oh, sure. when I, I went to a store and like, they had this blue hat that was there and I was like, this is it. So it, it became part of my identity, like in community college, in undergraduate. And I was just like, at one point, um, because of just the fact that I was wearing it so much during the winter, apparently there were bets, uh, about whether I was bald under my hat or not. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I, wish, I, I wish I knew because I would have, you know, had a windfall either or, but, um, and I wasn't by the way I had hair. but so that's where the blue hats come from. And I still have it to this day, though. I don't wear it as much, um, the same hat, the same hat, because it, wow. it was part of my educational journey throughout everything that happened, community college, uh, college, my four year degree, uh, grad grad school, medical school. Uh, And even through residency. So I I still have it to say I I wash it. I haven't worn it in like a while, but I do wash it and um still have it. It's like my keepsake and reminds me of the journey I've been on so far. So that's 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 cool. All right. That's where the blue hats came from. Um comics was something that I was also interested, always interested in when I was younger. And so it started out with those small like Marvel cards that you can put into the plastic holders. And so in school, people would bring these binders full of cards and it would be like the Marvel cards of different like, X-Men characters. And I would be like, oh, that's so awesome. And so my dad got me comics when I was younger. And I remember I was so engulfed in just looking at the artwork for it, like not really paying attention to the story, but mostly just the visual aspect of it. And I was just so blown away from just like the penciling, the art, the shading and coloring. And I said, like, wow, this is so cool. And I eventually started getting into the storylines of uh, like comics, either going mostly DC at one point or switching back to Marvel. Um and then at times going to more third um content parties, kind of like image comics um or valiant comics and getting into those stories and that's and so that's where the comics portion come from and then i'm i'm born in 1985 and so that's where that portman to name came from and i just use it ever since
0: okay okay so uh, uh, as far as the the comics part of it it's okay. interesting that you said you were first uh, drawn to the artwork because now being in pathology i mean there's a bit of, you know, there's, there's art in, in the pathology slides. If you look at the microscopic slides mm-hmm. or even some gross images, I mean, a lot of people have made art out of that. So it's interesting that that's kind of mm-hmm. where you started and, and now where you are.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so, it's so interesting because that that should, that should have been one of the indications for me to like, you know, go to a very visual heavy field in terms of, that like for medicine, and I'm sure we'll talk about it later in the podcast, but, you know, I always thought about, I always thought about medicine being where I was going to end up eventually, um, when I as younger. And so even like studying and all, and all that, I found that anything visual was so much more easier for me to grasp that I should, you know, when I was writing my personal statement for, for residency, I incorporated the comic aspect into it too, for both surgery and for but mostly pathology I expanded on it a bit more t- to say like how I've just been so involved in looking at things visually um that's like how I process information I'm much more faster for myself at least
0: so yeah mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah I've, I've noticed too especially recently the people that I've talked with they have that visual aspect to them and even kind of in sometimes like an artistic side to them as well. Now, being into the comics, I don't want to talk about comics forever, but <laughs> be, being into com- I mean, did you ever try, you know, drawing your own or anything anything like that?
1: No, I I did not. I there there's a part of me that wishes that I could have developed that when I was younger. I mean, it's, it's never too late to say no to doing something, but there was always like a small artistic flair that i felt like i had by just reading stories but i never pursued that um because i was just all about like the sciences and you know dealing with that and when i mean dealing with that by i mean by pursuing that and be, be pursuing sciences and and all that so no i i haven't um but i i wish i made some dope story back in the day and, and see where i would have ended up if it like t- taken off
0: well there's always i, I mean you, you know uh michael schubert from the from the pathologist right mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah he um when i talked with him he said he for a while he was like a science consultant for i think it was for marvel comics oh
1: wow
0: yeah wow. which i didn't didn't okay. even know was a thing but yeah <laughs> that that's something you could do too
1: <laughs> maybe one day we'll see
0: Shout yeah. out to people
1: yeah. in Marvel, y'all. Hey, you know if you need somebody, <laughs> let me know.
0: <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> we'll, we'll take them on Twitter. Um, all right, now. So you mentioned that you know you always, from a young age, you figured you you would go and and, and get into medicine, mm-hmm. but you kind of had a not necessarily a straight line to get there. I mean, you studied mm-hmm. chemical engineering for for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Can we talk about that aspect because that's something new that I haven't haven't covered at all with with anybody on the podcast before. So, what what is what is chemical engineering, and then how did you how did you become interested in it?
1: Yeah, that. So, chemical engineering. I mean, if I could just, I guess, have a brief description of it from when I was doing it. it's more of uh, basically converting like raw materials into useful products. And so there are multiple process multiple like laws of like thermodynamics and physics that I mean I'm not I'm not doing it currently but those who are engineers out there I'm sure know in terms of process design and ways to have a more efficient um, system to start at point a with raw products and then go to point B to make a final product with however many percentage of the product that you need in that final. You know, concoction that's made. So that this is more of a just a general overview, though there's, pro- there's probably a lot more that I may be missing and just not doing because I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not practicing it right now. Um, okay. But yeah, so that, that was it. And so my story into that was, you know, when I, I started community college and I was pre-med, I, I said I wanted to do pre-med. I, I did a year of, of bio, like being a bio major. And I've noticed that when I was doing like basic algebra and trigonometry, like that that made more sense to me than trying to memorize um like the Krebs cycle. And so I remember I went I went back to told my mother and my father, and I was like, you know, I think I'm gonna spend another year in community college. So three years altogether, so the traditional two. And I said, I'm gonna switch majors because like I had a lot of encouragement from like a small engineering department at SUNY Orange in Middletown, New York. And they were saying, like, hey, like, you know, do you do you like this? Like, it seems like you're really interested in it. And I, and I was like, Yeah, this is kind of chill. And so I did calc one and that nailed it for me. And so when I I ended up switching into just engineering in general, that's that's what they um have a two-year engineering associate's degree. So I chose chemical because I knew I was going to do medicine and I really liked chemistry. And just through reading about chemical engineering more in the past, I realized or read that you know, they were instrumental in um getting penicillin out or creating batch products of penicillin uh for for patients back in the like 50s and 60s. And so I you know it inspired me more to say, okay, like this is it. Um besides doing like mechanical engineering or civil engineering, I just felt like chemical was the route that I was going. And so uh I applied to University of Buffalo for the chemical engineering degree and I transferred it as a junior. And it, it was it was interesting in that aspect to see like coming, like going to a bigger college from a smaller university, like from a community college. Um, because as, at the junior level, there were at least like 30-something students um, who made it to the junior um, level co- um, college courses in engineering, chemical engineering, compared to when there was like, from what I, my understanding was like, you know, over 100 or more who just said engineering as their major. So that's how I ended up in chemical engineering with the background, that backdrop, that I knew I wanted to go into medicine, and I wanted to have and back back in back then when you're doing something, it's like for applying to medical school, it felt like you had to justify why you went into a major that was like non premed um or had pre premed like small focus in it, but like why did you do it and what was different about it? And, I mean, I loved it, I enjoyed it, and I t- said that during my interviews, but I always felt like I had to justify why so I always wrote up that penicillin story. With that, and, and there's a fun fact too about chemical engineering. So, Dr. Mae Jemison, she is a chemical engineer. So, she did chemical engineering. She got an MD, and she was the first black woman to travel into space. And is a current author. So, yeah, I oh, think it wow. was a good field. <laughs>
0: uh, I would say so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you if if chemical engineering includes things like drug development, and it sounds like yeah, it does.
1: I think along the way, like the the, the undergraduate courses were more uh, like process design and just using like calculus uh, to okay. to show like how to just how you would theoretically design a process, and then going I'm sure more into either drug company like drug uh, pharmaceutical companies or even going for graduate degrees. Uh, I'm sure you can focus more into the like. Drug development and processes that way as well too. So yeah, I, I feel like it is a pathway um, to go that to go that route too.
0: Okay, so it's kind of uh, I guess medicine adjacent in a way. Mm-hmm. All right, let's continue the story then. How do you how how did you get from chemical engineering and then decide yeah medicine is where I want to be? Well,
1: well, so I I've always wanted to do medicine. That was that was mm-hmm. like the underlying theme in my journey toward med school but of course like the that journey is was um a long process and so yeah when i when i applied the first time to medical school it was my junior year i had no idea about the process at all like really didn't understand it i was like oh like i just apply and like you go on from there and didn't have the people to kind of help me i guess mold the way i would answer questions or personal statements and so i did not get in the first time and i think i posted that on twitter a while ago uh several months ago about my first rejection letter from um one of the medical schools and it even got so bad where i think it was probably the spring of of one year and i called the school i was like so I sent an application and like this is how much I just didn't know. I call I sent an application in, uh, like when do you all get back to me? And and the person responded, Listen, if we didn't get back to you back then, we're not getting back to you back like right now. And he hung up the phone. And so I'm wow. a junior in college and I'm like, What is happening right now? You know, like I built everything up, like like leaving my comfort zone of home and going out to like Buffalo, New York. I'm from New York City, like the Bronx originally, and you know doing that. And so I sort of had to scramble and like figure out what I was going to do because it. People always tell you to to plan for like part B, like if you didn't get in. And so mm-hmm. I got in contact with the, the pre med advisor, and they were like, "Hey, like you know maybe apply to grad school and see if that's the way." for you to build your resume up and see where you go. So I applied to the graduate program. It's with Roswell Park. So I spent two and a half years there, got a master's degree and had to, and def- I- I've never done it before. I had to defend like a master's thesis, which I they probably took it maybe easier on me. I, I don't know. I probably, sh- <laughs> they probably did it, but uh, it was rigorous going through that, that process. Like I know we talk about medical school and, and going through the, four years or years of going through getting that MD but going to grad school I, I would say is equally as rigorous depending on you know what the program is about and so I got to see that um, eventually defended my like master's thesis got the okay to say that I'm I'm going to graduate get my master's degree and then I worked for a year a couple years at Rosal Park on the clinical side in urology, so I worked under Doctor Willie Underwood, who was a urologist, who is a urologist, and he got me one of his like early studies that he was doing. And so I was for the first time working in a clinical setting, but I didn't have to go home and like study for something rigorously or think about experiments the next day or think about like what am I liking up in terms of like is there another assignment I have to read? You know, so it was kind of nice, like, kind of being away from that, but I also knew I had to apply to med school at the same time. And so, when I when I applied the second time, I it was great because I had support. Uh, I, I met more people in the medical school. Dr. David Milling was one. It's very encouraging. I remember, like, every time during grad school, I was like, can I really do this? You know, it's like, I've never done something like this before. It was a big lab. I felt like know small like fish in this big pond on this lab and trying to see like how to move forward with the experiments and he was very encouraging and so I took the MCAT the second time and I think this is where you know I'll bring up the fact of like being black applying to med school because there were older physicians black physicians that I would talk to, like, for recommendation letters and stuff, and I remember when I got the MCAT score, and I, they were, it was scored back then, it was out of 45, so I think I got somewhere near, like, third, like, somewhere near third, yeah, I don't remember, but I got, I got that, that number, and I remember they were, like, do it, a, like, like, don't apply to season, do it again, and I was, like, what? And they were, like, no, do it again, and their perspective was, like, talking to them more was, like, when I was, when, you know, when they applied back then, like they had to work twice, three times as hard just to be on even footing or steps with their white peers. And so okay. they try to continue on with that. With that, when they see somebody applying or doing something in terms of medicine, like, you know, that's what that was, that was what was instilled in them. And so for me, they were saying, you know, like, I get it, but like, go back, get a better score, have more options. Um, and it's also Dr. Milling about it. And I eventually applied and said, you know what? I'll see what happens. It's my second time applying. I already have a master's degree. Like I can see what else I can do if I don't really get into medicine. Uh, and I got interviews and eventually got into University of Buffalo. So that's my story of how I got into like medical school eventually as a non-traditional like student.
0: Okay. Okay. That's an interesting story. I think that's important for people to hear mm-hmm. for for those people out there who are non-traditional as well. And and mm-hmm. maybe think, you know, cause I used to think, and of course I haven't been to medical school, so I really don't have any idea, but I used to think you just went to college and then you went to medical school and then you did residency and then, you know, like that, like it was a straight line. And what mm-hmm. I've been learning is that it really, for, for most people, it, it, it really isn't. And I, I think you, that was like that for you.
1: Yeah. No, and it was it was pretty cool and interesting to see other non-traditional students. And it ranged from like uh people taking a year off before applying again versus people who've had full careers in like finance or um teaching, and then mm-hmm. decide like they like medicine was for them and so they go through the whole, you know, process of applying, getting their um, prerequisites done, and then you know going from there. And so I, I, to, I, mean, to anybody applying to any profession, for, you know, I give it to people for going for what they're going, going for what they want to do. But especially for the non-traditional students out there, like I get it. Like you have to hustle because you're doing yeah. two things: like you're working your your you know, day job or career, and if you have a you know, family that you're talking to your family about like doing such a career transition um, to eventually getting into whatever. You school that you go to for for medical and then afterwards like getting to residency and stuff so i i applaud i applaud um everybody getting in but especially the non-traditional students who are either thinking about transitioning or who are currently doing it
0: yeah that's that's a very good point now you mentioned about uh, uh, some of the kind of older black doctors giving you some advice as a mm-hmm. black medical student Mm-hmm so what was that experience like then? Did you feel like you had a similar experience to what they were describing in terms of just how they said it was harder for them being a, a person of color in medical school?
1: Yeah. So let's transition into medical school then. Um, so when I got into medical school, I went to the um, University of Buffalo. It's now called the Jacobs School of Medicine Biomedical scientist, I believe. When I did, it was University of Buffalo Medical School. And we had whew, I think five, six blacks and maybe several Latinos, but their the remainder of the class was like was white and Asian. And so it, it's 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 interesting going into medical school and meeting that environment. So you're stuck for two years in a classroom where it's people like not being in a way, like being competitive for yourself, but also in terms of being competitive with each other because of the fact that grades matter and help with like you people going into competitive specialties. But going more back to like the social aspect of, of medical school. Yeah, like there was the five or six blacks that I would kind of gravitate towards because we had a shared experience. Um, And not saying I would like not talk to anybody else, but, you know, that's a shit experience that we had. And so... There was times during med school where, uh, let's say third year, because um, I don't want to give a whole bunch of stories, but third year where, um, and even before then, where there were comments about like, oh, you got in just because you were black. Like, you know, you didn't, you know, in a way saying, you know, you, you got in because you were black. Not saying, uh-huh. and not talking to anybody else, like, you know, the other students who were in the class who were just studying stuff, but, you know, you got in because you were black. And I'm just like... You know, it's one of those it's another where it's like all right like this happened and um you know back then it's like who do you talk to about this like do you make a big do you make a big deal out of it or do you just take this microaggression and just go on with it because of the fact like if you make noise about it then you're seen as other not like in within the black community but like the class like you know I see. you're, you're seen as or the feeling as you're seen as this Person who who's making such a big deal out, like out of a statement, and it, it was just it was just so interesting. And there were and there were people, and I, I I don't know if it still happens now, but in medical school there there are individuals who has never who have never met a person of color, and so we would or I or somebody else would be like their first experience talking to somebody who's non-white, and it was just so interesting that like in, this is this is the world where. You know we're at, and this is you no know, the school. I as a microcosm, and I'm not, and I'm not saying anything about the school in general, but I would just feel like with higher fields where there's less and less um, people of color um, getting into those fields for one reason or another. Like when you get there, it's like you know you're 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 in a way the first contact that some people would have because the only contact they have of not meeting people of color is through TV through movies basically stereotypes and that's their perception you know so you're trying to talk to somebody but also break down their perception and it changes the dynamic of how you talk to people because then you know in a way it's like okay i have to be more on guard and not show any sort of you know stereotype that movies tv media have about like individuals because then subconsciously or maybe consciously these people are going to be like oh yeah like that's how black people act so sure you know, not right. in a way I outside of, of, of what media has, but just like, oh, yeah, that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's all, I feel like it's always like some sort of battle that's happening. Even I feel like now to this day with, with people, it's, it's in a way still that. I'm sure there are people who still have to act a certain way in order to make other people feel comfortable around them. And basically, comfortable meaning cold switching or conforming towards the, that individual so that they, that individual feels more comfortable
0: around them So of vice versa so wait so you're saying you you felt like you had to do or act differently so yeah. other people were comfortable yes mm-hmm. that that seems i mean i understand but that's wow that's very backwards okay yeah. i can't imagine <laughs> the pressure that's on top of being in medical school <laughs> wow. right
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: Okay. I wanted to get into like how you got into pathology and I know you were interested in surgery at at first or maybe Mm -hmm. kind of at the same time. Yeah. Let's, let's go through that part. How did you, how did you become interested in, in surgery and and then in in pathology?
2: Yeah.
1: So when I started medical school fun, uh, interestingly enough, like histology was my favorite class because it goes back to the whole, um, visual understanding of things. Like I can see yeah. when they posted a slide about like normal histology of um, colon or GI. I was like, oh, I know what that. Like I was like, oh, I know what that is. Like I can see it. And mm-hmm. so I developed this interest of, in pathology and wanted to pursue that. And so, so you know, let's let's fast forward towards third year. So I was like, okay, pathology that's probably where I'm going. Um, and I did my first rotation was surgery. And I had, I think it was the, for the most part, it was so interesting to see, to be as a student and kind of see like what surgeons go through, meaning like, you know, what kind of medical decisions they have to do. And there was such anatomy, uh, associated, there was anatomy associated with like being a surgeon and I loved anatomy. I loved that aspect of it. And I was like, oh wow, like I'm seeing patients and I can, you know, do anatomy. Like, okay. Like, I think I'm going to become a surgeon. So uh, when I applied for surgery, I actually didn't get in. I prelimed the first year, and the program director at University of Buffalo, his name was Dr. Luke Hebb, He we had that like discussion because the whole so process is a whole emotional process. But we had a discussion, and I said um, he apologized. He's like, "You know, I'm sorry you didn't get in, but like, you know, we have a spot for preliminary, uh, and preliminary preliminary means that you don't like this is for those listening." There's a preliminary spot and categorical spots. So preliminary spots are just one-year contracts. Categorical spots mean that you can progress through the five years or whatever years of a residency without having to worry about applying to another residency in between in a way compared to a prelim. So if I did a prelim year, I would have to apply to surgery residency again uh, in order to get a categorical spot so that I had like a, a definite space for residency. So that that's just the difference between those two when I say that. Um, okay, so I got the preliminary spot and when I I I did it and um the year was very uh woo, rigorous. Um and what I mean by that it wasn't it wasn't the work. I dealt with some very malignant personalities and it, well mostly a couple. The remainder of the the surgery the surgery residents and clinical team were good. I, I enjoyed working with them and you know at times miss them and see how they're doing. I still keep in contact with them too. There were a couple of people who were very malignant and so and that's who I worked with for the most part. But besides that, I also realized that I did not feel like surgery was for me. I was more interested in the diagnostic portion of medicine. Like I really loved to be able to like diagnose is what I was kind of going for, which is hard in certain, Like for me when I was originally entering surgery. And, and fun fact, when I initially went into medical school, I wanted to do family medicine. I wanted to go in and, and go in do family medicine and be like, all right, like this is what I was doing. And then I did clinic and I was like, I'm not a family medicine doctor. I was so much more interested in pathophysiology and, and, and come up with the diagnosis. And I was like, that's where I feel like I'm heading. I thought surgery okay. was that way of doing that, but it, it was actually pathology. And so I was able to take a elective with the, patho- the pathology department at University of Buffalo and they opened me with welcome arms and they were so like gracious and amazing and I, and I said, yeah, this is it. So midway, this was, I think September is when I did this elective. I was like, yep. So I, I got recommendation letters and applied to pathology and history has written itself
0: afterwards. okay okay i like that that's i've i've talked to a few people that have kind of started in surgery and mm-hmm. switched to pathology for basically a lot of the same reasons that, that you just talked about mm-hmm. this is the people of pathology podcast with our guest dr michael williams we'll be right back LabVine is designed to integrate into the daily routine of any laboratory stakeholder and support you and your team holistically Here are some of the features of LabVine. You can complete a skills assessment to identify your gaps and needs and be directed to resources to build those much-needed competencies. You can head over to Vinestream and listen to podcasts and webinars, including this podcast. If you have problems and need mentorship in your lab but lack the in-house expertise, you can head over to the Conflab and connect with an expert that has the solution for you. And when you have a few extra minutes, check out Vine News to stay informed on the latest international trends in lab medicine. You can follow the link in the show notes to head over to LabVine and check out these features and more. Dress Med has been designing and manufacturing high-quality scrubs since 1980. The prices are affordable, the shipping is very fast, and the scrubs have lots of pockets, which I really like. I actually have several sets of these myself. So check out Dress Ahmed by using the link in the show notes. You can sign up for their loyalty program for free and earn special offers and discounts. Now back to Dr. Michael Williams on the People of Pathology podcast. So one of the things I like to do is if if we go through kind of early interests, and then kind of early education and then get to pathology and then see if there's any, maybe there was any link to something that you did previously. So we talked earlier about the chemical engineering and just engineering in general. And uh-huh. do you feel like there's, there's a link to between pathology and engineering? Because in thinking about that, I thought, well, there's, they're both kind of systems based, you know, formulaic ways of, of thinking um, mm-hmm. Do you, you feel like you picked up anything from your time in engineering that you, you carried forward through to pathology?
1: Yeah, no, that's a good question. I um, actually great analysis too. So, so you know, I, I didn't really, I guess constantly, I haven't really thought about it too much. But now that you bring it up, I think that, like, for example, guidelines by like CAP, for example, where they have, mm. they, have like, they have like ways of, this is how we're going to go and sort of present this data to, to the, our clinical colleagues. So for example, like with HER2, um, ERPR biomarkers, yeah, in, in a way it's, it's kind of just like with, with engineering where there's certain amount, certain specific amount of rules that you are given in order to identify the process and then, you know, optimize it. And I feel like in a way that's what I see with like predictive biomarkers with like her two and ER and PR and sorry, apologies if I'm if I'm putting everything together that way. Um, but just for lack of shorter work terms, I, I you know, I'll call them predictive biomarkers. But yeah, so I, I think in terms of that, and then also the the critical like analysis that you know every field has. I feel like with engineering you really have to think about how you're gonna optimize um something. And so in a way, I have to translate it to like when you're visually draw out a process, kind of like when you're getting a slide and you're seeing like all the different parts, you know, microscopically, like all the sounds, but also the architecture. And you're thinking mm-hmm. to yourself, okay, like what clues are here that I can optimize to prove that this is the diagnosis that I see on a slide? Because I have to tell my <laughs> clinical colleagues, like, this is what I see. This is the evidence based on the, specific or different parts of, on the slide and different parts of the tissue that I see in order to let them know, like, this is what I think. Like, I want to optimize the diagnosis so that way I let that my clinical colleagues know and they can, they can treat their patients accordingly. So that's how I would see clinical engineering in a way being somewhat similar to pathology in that aspect.
0: Sure, sure. That makes a lot of sense so we've got into into residency now now let's talk about subspecialties mm-hmm. and and you've got a couple that that are interesting to you uh the first one then neuropathology mm-hmm. which all right so let's talk about this one how did you become interested in, in this
1: yeah so this i, I keep on reversing i this goes back to um being in buffalo so okay we got to see as like a rotating resident we got to see brain cutting and autopsy and they were kind of go hand in hand. And I always thought it was interesting. Like, again, it was like Rawls well, an anatomy for something. I was like, "Ah, that's kind of cool that, you know, that's, that's, a, that's something that pathologists can do. And then again, this is me just really trying to understand like what a pathologist does, because even though I was there for a month to see more of the AP side, I didn't get to see much of the CP side just because of the limited time, but it was kind of cool mm-hmm. to see um, brain cutting and also to be part of autopsies because it is this probably a shared experience amongst others. Like, I, I didn't see one. I didn't know they really existed besides being on TV. But when you see or get to participate in one, like, it's, there's a very, reg- like, regimented process and that occurs with that. And so right. I was really... I was really excited to participate in that aspect, to see that and then get to see, like, the the what they call the girls conference. So you're seeing the organs and explaining what you see grossly. And so what really got me in that was I participated in an autopsy with Mm -hmm. one of the senior residents. And I presented like the findings that I found with the decedent. And, you know, it was so educational. And I was like, wow, like I'm really putting together what I learned back in like first two years you know medical school like all the pathophysiology and like comparing it to histology and i said wow like i think this is what, what i like like i'm really into forensics and brain cutting and seeing that i was like wow like those two would be cool so going into residency i was very open-minded just to see what things are available for pathology residents in general and of course it was so broad and expansive going through the years like wow like i didn't know you know pathologists were involved with lab directorship or lab medicine like i i thought it was just this black box that just existed and i remember sometimes like being in a clinic or sorry on the floors and thinking to myself and talking to residents like do you ever wonder where these chemistry values come from like who who does these But i never really you know go went further than that but I've always felt like, you know, even through my rotations, I was like, "Wow, like pathology, like maybe forensics for me, maybe neuropathists for me." And I had like kind of a change of heart for a bit because I was like, you know, we could do so much surgical path, like maybe I'm meant to do surgical pathology. But like, I also, in a way, liked grossing. Um, and I was like, oh, I. That's have
0: to great find-. to hear.
2: <laughs> I know, love that.
1: It's like. <laughs> I, I I did. I was like, wow, like, and I remember talking to my program director, and I'm not making this story really long, but I was like, wow, I really, in a way, like, I mean, I may be standing and cutting and like, man, like, okay, next specimen, how I'm going to deal with this complicated specimen and, and margins, but like the cutting and like getting the sections and stuff like that, like, I, I I was like, I would miss that, like, not being able to do that, and so I talked to my program director and talked to the medical examiner and I was like, yeah, I think I'm going to do forensics. And then I was like, oh man, neuropath. Because we had a neuropathologist at SUNY Upstate, uh, which is where I did residency. So each year, we mm-hmm. always had somebody who showed us neuropathology, and we also always had contact with brain cutting. And so I decided to apply for both of them and then see what happens. And so now I'm currently at UAB, University um, of Alabama in Birmingham, for neuropathology. And then the plan is to do uh, forensics. At uh, the Allegheny Medical Examiner in Pittsburgh.
0: I'm curious about the the forensic pathology part because you mentioned kind of the TV aspect which is not a real good representation of the field but Mm -hmm. given that at the time I guess if you were, were you active on on Twitter and all of that stuff at at that time? Because the thing I'm trying to get at is if there was somebody like instead of a TV forensic pathologist like an actual real in person you know real-life forensic pathologist that might have influenced you in this area
1: not during my time in buffalo there so the the one thing that i was really what really inspired me it wasn't um a particular person that i i met i did and side note i did try to rotate with the forensics i uh, um examiner when i was doing trauma surgery as a as a resident um, but our, our times would never align. So I never got to have that experience. But it was mostly when I was doing the autopsies, the hospital autopsies back in in Buffalo. And the the, the question is, like, what happened? What What is the cause of death for this patient? And, like, what are you going to tell the family that what you found? And so it, it was just kind of, like, very, like, just that aspect of the critical thinking that I honestly was just like, wow, like, I wanna make sure we don't miss anything. Even though it was my first autopsy, I was like, I, I wanna make sure like we kind of go through, you know, different organisms to try to come up with a way of explaining what we're seeing so we can let family or significant others know what happened to the loved one. And so I I it was it was doing that where I was like doing those autopsies where I really was like, I think this is where I'm headed towards. And then we got to do forensic cases mostly more hospital autopsies in sumi upstate and so my first year yeah so within like the first three months we got that expo. i got that explosion i was like yeah like you know like it's still building me up more and i got to talk with the medical examiner's there and get to see a little bit more about what's in the field and so yeah
0: and you know it's it's no secret there is definitely a shortage of forensic pathologists, so it's nice to mm-hmm. see someone with your uh, enthusiasm for the field uh, mm-hmm. going in that area. So that's that's great to know. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about then your your most uh, recent project. So this is uh, you, you started a podcast as well, the Diversify In Path Podcast. Yes. Mm-hmm. Which uh, at the time we're recording this, you've got three episodes out and I, I actually just listened to the third one just uh, earlier today. So, so let's talk about kind of the origin, what, what, the origin story of this to, to kind of go right. back to a comic book kind of thing. Right. So, right. so, so what, what is the origin story <laughs> of, of the diversify Path podcast?
1: I think the, the, with the origin, this was, this was at the, when the pandemic first started and I, I didn't listen. Let's start back. so, Interestingly, when I would visit my dad, he would listen to podcasts on his way to work. But like he he would go into to work for the MTA, as uh, one of the, the foremen, And so he would like show me all these podcasts and like things that he was interested in. And I was like, oh, like I, I didn't really know this medium existed. I mean, it was there, but I, I didn't mm-hmm. know like it was an actual medium that people listened to. And so I got really like into them. But I think during the pandemic, it was like when, you know, there was more social distancing and like less meeting people in general. I always felt like the podcast, like listening to podcasts was in a way, some form or fashion, how I could still, you know, maybe it's odd to say, but connect to people, like hearing your stories. I was like, wow, like it's interesting. And so oh, okay. when I, when I was going into the um hospital, for my rotations um, when there was like what they call a pandemic rotation to kind of spread out the time we residents in the hospital. I would be listening to podcasts on my drives in and I remember I was just so energetic like as I was if I was part of the conversation <laughs> like I would listen to somebody I'm like oh my god that's so true like ask him this question next or ask him that question next and you know I was so so like energetic into it and then I got offered to be in my like the first podcast the battle cry podcast um, with Dr. Maria Lucco um, shout out to her hey uh, hey girl what up and so yeah. I said like we, we did and I was we did one together and she invited me on her show and I absolutely loved it I was like wow this is like this is amazing like to you know hear the story so I followed her and listened to her to that and then Pathpot had one as well too. Mm-hmm. Which I was on theirs, and I was like, "Wow!" And then, I know you were starting one too. So I was listening to all these pathology-specific ones, um, and then the whole incident with George Floyd, unfortunately, like we started talking about diversity and the need for diversity, and like that conversation came into the spotlight, and so there was all these yeah. organizations talking about DEI and like increasing the diversity aspect of their of their like organizations and the schools and hospitals and all that. And so it was, it was like interesting to hear, to hear this, but then I felt like, I felt like the conversations were authentic, but I always felt like there was times where people held back because I I really feel like we still live in two different Americas you know, there are things I can do and and say versus like for you that you can do and say. And like, mm-hmm. it, you know, it, I'm not saying you, like you would get away, but if I, I'm like, oh, like, yeah, like maybe um, Dennis can get away with this because of the fact, like, you know, he's a white male versus me, I have to be cautious to what I do. And I was like, I was, I was sure. kind of really wanting to hear those conversations. And so yeah, I was also studying for the boards, which was its own process. And then, um Dante Wright unfortunately was like that incident happened occurred uh, had occurred as well and so I really was just like I need something to you know ground myself but we we have to continue all these conversations because they are important and people should listen to them and I, I would I I want them to be as authentic as possible and I want them to be not associated with any specific organization I just want people to just talk regular and you know, expose themselves as much as they felt comfortable with. And so I spent like several months researching how to start a podcast. And I I'm like, oh man, like this shouldn't be too bad. And well, yeah, there was months that I was like researching how this all occurred, like how to start one, the equipment, the software. Um and sounds like, familiar. <laughs> yeah. You know, like the 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 like what do you need and how to get going and I said, you know what, like, I, I I, I said to myself, like, you either start this now or you just don't do it anymore, you just don't do it. And I said, you know what, I want to do it. Now, side story, I was, it was um, a book that I was reading and there was a portion in it that talked about um, how if you don't see a story, and I forgot the the author who said this, and I could be mistaken. I want to say Tony Morrison, but I could be wrong. Um where she or they stated that if you don't see a story in a bookstore that you want to read and you don't see it then make it like create it for yourself and that's what i did i created something that i said i'll see how this works out and turns out and kind of going from there and i i was like i kind of told like nicole um jackson she was the first person Uh that I, i i told and i was like So I'm gonna do this podcast. And I I want you to be on it. Like, would you mind being on my, you know, first couple of episodes? So she ended up being my first episode. And before I remember before we recorded, we had like a whole like, you know, hour talk before like we actually recorded. And I said, Nicole, I'm gonna start this. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. She's like, you'll be fine. I was like, well, (laughs) here we go. And (laughs) and so yeah, and we did it, and like, you know, there was the editing portion, which nobody ever talks about in podcasting in a way. They do, but like wow. behind the scenes. And so like the editing portion and learning about like editing, which was a hassle. Well, I got it together and I was and I told Nicole, like, I think I'm done. I'm gonna publish it. She said, yeah, Okay, go ahead. I was like, All right. And um, yeah, and so it got published and like it it just I guess blew up because Nicole was just so energetic when she was talking about her truths and and everything. Um, that she went with, and she was just like, you know, unbiased and like completely blunt in my opinion. And I was like, I yeah. love this. And so I <laughs> I talked to other people and I said, hey, like before Nicole's like before I interviewed Nicole, and I said, hey, like, I'm starting this, this is what the project's about. I, I I would want to have you on there, you know, and this is what I'm I'm envisioning, you know, even though it's just short-term goal, like in terms of my vision, I was like, I I, I want you on next. I, I would love to interview you. And so um, Betty Ebua was like, "Sure, okay." And then Marcos Lepe, hashtag hot sauce. He came, he came <laughs> on next, and so and so it was just like, "Wow!" Like you know, and I asked more and more people, and they just seemed so into that. And I tell them like, "Listen, I'm still learning the process. Like, please forgive me, and if I get something wrong." And so yeah, that's how that started, and it's you know, how it's currently going. Um, uh-huh. every Thursday is a new release. And I always, you know, hope that the stories bring something new to light and they're not something that people don't, you know, pay attention to. But like, you know, maybe it encourages somebody to have a discussion with somebody of color about like their experiences and like, you know, go in that aspect versus like, seeing something and, like, not saying anything because, you know, silence is a powerful weapon. And if somebody right. is going through something and you're not not saying anything in general, it's not being said, like, silence is at all. So, that, that's one of the hopes of the podcast. But that's where the origin of that started.
0: Okay. You know, I, something you said that, you know, for a short time there, everybody was talking about diversity mm-hmm. um, with these incidents that happened that you mentioned, and then it kind of that went away, but it was a lot less in a short mm-hmm. period of time. And I think what you're doing is kind of continuing that conversation, which really needs to happen. And it's, you know, like you said about Dr. Jackson, it's a very kind of open, honest discussion, and it's mm-hmm. just it's just two people talking which which i think is great
1: mm-hmm. yeah no it, it was you know i i i was and thank you for saying that and i you know it's with nicole dr jackson she was i was like all right and and i and i knew her i know her, known her from twitter like this is where um where a majority of the people who interviewed from like on my podcast yeah. i know them from twitter and we've talked we've had several conversations outside like like privately or DM back and forth and we would exchange phone numbers and we talk. And so when I asked her, like I, I was very comfortable talking to her because we knew each other and we like trusted each other um, in that aspect. And that's what I was like, Hey, like if, you, if there's something you want me to delete in terms of like either like mumbling or whatsoever just let me know and like, I'll take care of that. But yeah, no, it goes back to what you were saying. I think the conversations yeah, they, they kind of went away from the limelight. And I, I feel mm-hmm. like it's always not always, but there's like this like being an engineer, like this sign this this um, sinus waveform where like something happens and like people think about it and then it goes away. And there's so much that the for example, people of color um communities have to deal with like whatever you know, crashes down and like have all these unresolved issues. And then when it happens again, it's like, well, this happened. It still happens. Why is it such a surprise? And it's obviously conversations that should happen, but is it people don't know how to have the conversations or are they just not aware? And so for me, I, I said that I, I wanted to make those conversations known and alive and viable. And so that and, and record it so that people can reference it in one way or another so that it's not just something that happens in one moment of time in history and then goes away. It's something that's always there and we should know about it.
0: Definitely. I absolutely agree. I, I really love what you're doing. I, I, you know, I've listened to all of your episodes so far and I, I really enjoy them. You do a great job.
1: Thank you. I, I call myself a podcaster in training on PGY one love it because <laughs> <laughs> just like in medicine i'm like all right i'm still loving this process and so um yeah yeah it, it, it's fun and with each you know with each guest like that comes on you know in, in a way i want to call them a speaker because they, they they have such this energy of like things that they want to say or things that they're just like okay this is how this is how i'm going to say and i can't wait for you to bring it up in a discussion um uh-huh. where i'm just like like, that's so, like, I, like, things I'm not really aware of. I'm like, I, I try to, i like, hear and learn and say, what, what is it, what are things that I'm not aware of that are happening in front of me or probably behind, you know, in the background that I'm, I'm not aware of and they teach me so much. So I always thank all the speakers for their time and energy and effort for, like, you know, coming up here and doing that and, and all that. So I can go on and on, but... <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, one more question about the podcast that, you know, when yeah. I started, I was very surprised how willing people were to, to, to come on and, you know, and, and be interviewed for, for the, a, a podcast, especially one that was brand new. Uh, you're having that experience as well. Like everybody's just like, yeah, that sounds great. Let's do it.
2: Yeah. So, um,
1: yes, for the most part, I mean, I did, I, I did have some people and, and not, not, not their at all. I'm like, this is, this is a new project. And I think for them it was just like, okay, let let's see how it goes out. And, and again, not any fault of their own. It's just like for something like this, you know, would they get pushed back at an institution there they are in? Or, you know, like would they feel like they say something that they just don't want to be known? Um, but for the most part, I people are have been super excited about it. And so for me, when I you know I ask somebody, I tell them like listen, this is you do not have to at all. I'm just you know, asking, and if not, you know, sure, cool, no problem. Like, I'm not gonna be like, oh, we're, not, you know, we we no longer should talk at all. Like, I, you know, thank you for letting me know. Like, why you don't, you don't feel comfortable yet, and maybe in the future, after hearing stuff, sure, you want to come and talk. But you know, mm-hmm. I, I just, I just go with whoever I can, you know, as humanly as possible too, because it's just me, you know, <laughs> like one person doing everything, and then just wait to, you know, hear their stories. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. Now, the, the last thing I wanted to ask you about. So, you're very active on social media, especially Twitter, mm-hmm. and I'm curious how 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 did this start for you?
1: Twitter was like, I, so let's go back well, a little before residency. Actually, I started Twitter. I think probably my second or third year of med school. I, I didn't. I had one of those generic like Twitter names they give you, like your initials or name and then numbers behind it. And mm. then when I started residency in pathology my first year, a couple of my senior residents were saying about, talking about Twitter and social media. And the use of it in terms of like pathologists being on it and all that. And I was like, oh, like that's so cool and awesome that they're doing that to kind of see cases and maybe learn along the way. And so when I Started at Upstate, um, Syracuse, New York. I was moving from Buffalo. And part of my, like, for me, my going away process with Buffalo was going around taking pictures and selfies because I, I wanted to have, like, a visual, again, going back to the visual, representation of, like, where I have been at and where I'm going. And so, throughout the whole, like, orientation, like, first couple of <laughs> weeks, I said, I need to take a picture of what, what we're doing right now. And so... The, the program director and coordinator would like sit there and like, they like, what's happening right now? I'm like, trust me, it'll be great. Uh, I was like, I don't know if it's going to be great or not, but I'm just doing this for myself. And then, uh, it spawned off into like the whole selfies and me posting like cases on Twitter and like just saying, you know, like I didn't think like nothing was going to come from my Twitter account. Uh, and then over the years, it's just been like this vehicle to use as networking and, seeing like posting interesting cases and like seeing what other people are doing especially you know during these times where also just distancing it's like the one sort of most common thing that helps me keep connected to um the pathology world and so that's yeah. what, how it kind of evolved over time i mean i would go to conferences and just like take pictures and like, oh no, I remember, I know who you are on Twitter. And like, you know, it's like one of those things like, you know, the person's Twitter handle and name, but you have no idea what their first name is at all.
2: Yeah. (laughs) So there
1: are people who like, oh, I know you, you're Blue Hat Comics. I'm like, yeah, it's me. And they're like, so what's your name? And I'm like, oh, (laughs) I'm like, (laughs) and so it just, you know, it grew and evolved from then. And then that's how like my, you know, story in terms of Twitter, you know, Came, you know, came from there, and, uh, and at one point, I at one point I was just going to quit Twitter. I thought that it was like I think it was like third year of residency. Um, I don't know if anyone wants to know this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I almost I, I I was going to quit Twitter. I I didn't know what other value I would get out of it besides just like you know posting selfies and all that. And I figured I can I can catch up with people at conferences and kind of just do that. And so at one point I was like, oh, I should probably like delete it. And I talked to a couple of people um, about it and they were like, no, no, like you should keep it on, like just have it. And so it was just kind of there in the background. And like, you know, unfortunately with the George Floyd incident, I I was on there and just, you know, it became an impetus of just what can we do to make this process better. And so I stayed on mm-hmm. and still on currently. And, you know, just, I, I, I love it for what it is now, even though I'm not on it as much during the day.
2: <laughs> right. And
1: then I, I see what's on usually at night, but like, I, I'm glad I stayed on. And for those who are on Twitter right now, um, I honestly think it's such a great networking tool It's such a great way of just seeing and meeting people that you would not necessarily normally talk to in person when you see them at conferences. Like it it initiates a conversation and initiates friendships from there on out, too. So,
0: yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Do you feel like it has? kind of increased awareness of the pathology field i mean you mentioned earlier about thinking about oh you know does does anybody ever wonder how these lab tests are are run and things like that do you think this that twitter and other types of social media have helped with that
1: i i want to say yes to a i want to say yes um there are non-pathologists who are following like pathologists and so it was also it's always like interesting to see like somebody who's like a PhD or like, you know, you go to somebody who has maybe a large following in pathology or like who has a really good point of statement that they say about pathology. And like seeing all these vast specialties and professions mm-hmm. coming in and asking questions like PhDs or, you know, those who are OBGYN or those who are family medicine. Um I I, I wanna say I've made some friends, some non pathology friends recently or in the past and i try to tag them as um as much pathology pictures that i post as i can so they can kind of get an aspect of what i do while i kind of see like what they post and get an aspect of like what's going on in family medicine or internal medicine um and i I felt like there that makes such an awareness of pathology but also vice versa we get to see like what our clinical colleagues are doing
0: so Sure, sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. it works both both ways. That's mm-hmm. and it benefits everyone that way.
1: And I do want to say too, this also applies to the pathology assistants and the um, laboratory technologies as well, too, and everybody in pathology. I'm not saying pathologists in general, but I think the whole realm and field of pathology and lab medicine um ha- is represented on Twitter in one way or another. So not only do we get to see like what other fields are doing or what like other suspects are doing, we get to get the advice from people who are in lab medicine and in multiple, um, like steps of the way. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I love it. That's, that's great. That's a good, I think that's a good, good place to end. So Mm -hmm. this, this has been a real fun conversation. I I really appreciate, uh, you know, learning about your, your path to, uh, to pathology. So uh, Dr. Michael Williams, thank you very much.
1: All right. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it.
0: Great big thanks to Dr. Michael Williams. Now, next week, I'll be speaking with Dr. Charlotte White. We're going to be talking about three-dimensional imaging of tissues as well as 3D IHC. Here's a short preview and then I'll be back with some final comments on this episode.
2: So by the time I got to high school, I was really into, if they offered it as a science, I was taking it, you know, can I take anatomy and physiology? Fantastic, biology, Mm -hmm. chemistry, physics. So, when i went to college i originally went in thinking i want to go to med school but i want to get an engineering degree because with engineering especially chemical engineering i didn't have to choose between math and science i could get the best of both worlds and you have to take all of these other classes and then oh med school i can still do biology so that was my original trajectory i'm gonna go i can still do math and science which i love and then i'll go to med school Then I got to college and I decided (laughs) that I didn't need to make my type A tendencies worse. (laughs) And that seemed to be what (laughs) pre-med was lending itself towards. So I was like, I don't need to do med school, but I still love engineering.
0: So like I said at the beginning, Dr. Williams has such an incredible story. And some of the things that he went through just gave me a lot to think about later. We actually talked for a while after we stopped recording and really, This should have been a two-part episode. There's just so much more to his story. And I hope one day that we all get to hear the rest of it. In the meantime, go and listen to the Diversify in Path podcast if you're not already. It's really good. The guests have been great. I really enjoyed the story so far. You can find a link to that in the show notes. Also, this past Thursday, I was on Lab OPEX Live with Lona Small, and that was a lot of fun. We talked about making and cultivating professional relationships, and really, just like this interview, we only just scratched the surface of that topic. There's a lot more we could have discussed, and I might do more in that area in the future. So look for a link to that in the show notes as well. You can follow this show on Twitter and Instagram at People of Path, or connect with me on LinkedIn. Thanks for continuing to share the show with others, and together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being, and you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology Podcast.